Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it is a great privilege to open now the Holy Scriptures, for we know this is no ordinary book, but rather men spoke from God as they were carried along by your Holy Spirit. And even now, as this word is preached to us, would you speak through your herald? Speak now to our hearts and work within us that which is pleasing to you, for we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. you please open now your Bibles to our sermon text, Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7, page 948 in the Pew Bibles. So Romans 13, 1 through 7, here now, this is the holy, infallible word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval." For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. The small town of Le Chambon in southern France is a home to French Calvinists known as the Huguenots. When France was conquered by the Nazis during World War II, 80,000 Jews from France were sent to concentration camps, and many of them perished there. But the people of Le Chambon were able to hide 3,000 Jews in their small village. The pastor of Le Chambon rallied the villagers to action, saying, We will resist when our enemies demand that we act in ways that go against the teachings of the gospel. We will resist without fear, without pride, and without hatred. The people hid the Jews in their homes, and when Nazi patrols came through, they hid them in the mountainous countryside. They knew that they were risking their lives, but they considered it their Christian duty to protect these lives. It's estimated that they saved the lives of over 3,000 Jewish people, many of them children. Even though they were under the occupation of a foreign army, technically the Germans were there governing authorities. But they were right to save the lives of an oppressed minority. Perhaps they were motivated in part because the Huguenots themselves had a history of being an oppressed minority in Roman Catholic France. This morning we will conclude our five-part series on civil government with the topic of civil disobedience. Last time we looked at the general principle As Scripture commands us to submit to 
our governing authorities. However, there is an exception to the general rule. When they command us to do what God forbids, or forbid what God commands, we must disobey our rulers in order to obey God. This morning, we'll begin with the general rule. And second, we'll consider the purpose and scope of government. Third, we'll look at the principles of civil disobedience. Fourth, we'll consider the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And fifth, we'll ask the question of whether government, the question of whether government overthrow or independence is ever warranted. Now, this is a very challenging topic. And as we saw in our reading in Revelation 13, Christians can expect beastly, even demonic governments in this world who will persecute the church seeking her destruction. And so we need to be prepared. As Revelation 13 says, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So first, the general principle of submission to civil government. We saw this principle stated clearly in our passage last week in Romans 13, but it goes back much further to the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is stated in terms of honoring father and mother, but its application is much broader than just the family. The general general principle requires submission to all legitimate authority, and therefore it applies to submission to the civil government as well. In fact, Paul was drawing on the fifth commandment when he wrote in Romans 13, 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now, the general instructions in Romans 13 do not specify any exceptions. However, we know that there are exceptions in two ways. First, the fact that the authority of governing authorities is delegated to them from God means that their authority can never surpass his own. Since human rulers depend on God for their authority, they can never use that authority to overrule God's own law. That's the first way. And the second way is that we have several examples in the scriptures in which individuals disobeyed civil authorities and they are honored by God for their actions. We'll consider several of these examples in the course of our sermon this morning. In fact, there are so many in Scripture, I couldn't include them all in the sermon. Let's now move on to our second point this morning, the purpose and scope of civil government. In our study of civil government, since first seeing its establishment in the Noahic Covenant, we've known its purpose to maintain and promote justice by punishing evildoers. In both Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2, we see that this negative negative function of punishment is balanced by the positive function of praising those who do good. We also see another common function of government in the scripture, scripture, defending the nation from outside invaders. And in order to allow government authorities to dedicate themselves to these tasks, they are allowed to tax those, the people under their jurisdiction. And we saw last week that Christians are commanded to pay the taxes that they owe. And these functions of government, which are specified in Scripture, are what are required for a proper government. But of course, our government today does many more things besides these. Let me provide a partial list. 
Our government is heavily involved in education, from, from support for pre-K programs up to higher education. It funds transportation from the building of roads to the regulation of airlines. It heavily regulates the healthcare industry. It authorizes pharmaceutical products and provides Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid for the poor. It provides welfare assistance to the poor and social security system to provide for retirement and disability benefits. It provides grants to support the arts and the sciences. And that's only a partial list. Now you may say, these are all positive services that the government provides for the good of the people of our country. But I believe it's fair to say that this all goes beyond praising those who do good. We also need to remember that these things are all funded through uh, the coercion of, of forcing people to pay taxes. They are public services, and some may be optional to receive, but they are not optional to support, as you must pay your taxes. Now, of course, ours is nothing like a truly totalitarian government. In the Soviet Union, the government ran the entire economy, or at least attempted to do so, allowing no private business, no private religion, and no dissent. In this system, the government was everything, the entire society, and it had disastrous results. Now, what should we say about such things? I don't think that I can stand from the pulpit this morning and say definitively that a government that goes beyond the scriptural requirements to simply provide defense, to punish evildoers and praise those who do good is necessarily transgressing its limits. I have my own political views, which I will not preach from the pulpit, and this is perhaps a, an area best left for Christian wisdom. However, what I can say is that as government grows, there is certainly reason to be wary. As Lord Acton famously said, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I would say the scripture confirms that saying. The more total a government becomes, the more aspects of a society it pervades, the more dangerous it becomes. While it's conceptually possible for there to be a totalitarian and perfectly just government, I don't think such a thing can exist in our sinful world, for absolute power corrupts. Far safer is a limited government that focuses primarily on the scriptural requirements to provide for justice and protection. So that then brings us to our chief question this morning. How do we respond when a government transgresses its duty to punish the evildoer and praise the righteous? What if it punishes those who do what is good and praises those who do what is evil? So let's consider some proposed principles of civil disobedience. One example of a principle of civil disobedience would be this. I will obey good laws and disobey bad laws. Let's evaluate how this principle would work in action. First, you would have to evaluate each law and decide whether it is a good law or a bad law. Perhaps you decide the speed limit on the highway is too low. 
So you're going to break that law. Also, certain building regulations are too strict. Those are bad laws too. So you exempt yourself from those as well. You can quickly see that this principle quickly becomes a license to obey only the laws that accord with your own judgment of what is good and disobey those which you consider bad. It's true, there are many bad laws. They may cause inefficiency, hassle, waste, and yet those bad laws do not necessarily compel you, force you to sin. Businesses spend a lot of money on lawyers and accountants in order to comply with modern labor and tax laws, not to mention numerous environmental laws. Of course, the stated goals of these laws is a fairer and safer workplace and a cleaner environment, perhaps preventing climate change. Whether or not they achieve these things, we can leave it up to the scholars to debate. But if you disobey out of an objection to the government forcing you to do good in a way that you believe doesn't actually work, what will be the result? Well, you will most likely be punished for your failure to comply. Meanwhile, you have not actually been forced to sin. And so I believe we must reject this principle and adopt another. The biblical principle is twofold, and it is this. What God has forbidden should never be done, and what God has required should always be done. So first, what God has forbidden should never be done. This principle is illustrated in the first recorded example of civil disobedience in Scripture. In Exodus chapter 1, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, ordered the midwives of the Israelites to kill all the sons born to Israel as soon as they were born. We are told they disobeyed Pharaoh because they feared God. And so God dealt well with the midwives and blessed them with families. We see here that they disobey Pharaoh in order to obey higher law, the law of the Lord, the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. However, there is a wrinkle in the story. When Pharaoh confronts them on why sons continue to be born to the Israelites, it appears that they are forced to lie to Pharaoh, saying, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. And thus, they also end up breaking the ninth commandment out of fear of the Lord and in order to preserve life. We also see something similar in the story of Rahab in Joshua 2. She harbors the spies sent by Israel to spy out Jericho. So when the king of Jericho orders uh, her to uh, bring out the spies, she lies to him, saying they have gone out when really they are still hiding inside. She then devises a plan for them to escape and evade capture. And then she and her family are spared when Jericho falls to Israel. She does all this because she has put her trust in the Lord. And we later find her name in the genealogy of Christ. Rahab's example will later be followed by those who hid Jews during the Holocaust, including those in Le Chambon. So we've seen two examples in which kings were disobeyed out of the fear of the Lord. And in both examples, a lie was told in order to preserve life. Now we need to bring in our second principle. What God has required should always be done. 
Now, deciding to disobey one unjust law in order, um, or an order from a ruler does not justify breaking other laws. We should still seek to honor our rulers as much as possible and to uphold the rest of the law. This is why those who seek to reform government following biblical principles have often held to a standard of nonviolence. Now, one example of this principle being broken is in connection, sadly, with both the pro-life and pro-choice movements. There has been violence on both sides. There have been bombings of abortion clinics. More than one abortion doctor has been murdered. With the recent reversal of Roe v. Wade and the Dobbs decision, we've now seen the crisis Uh, We've seen crisis pregnancy centers being vandalized and set on fire. I think it should be obvious that taking exception to government policy concerning abortion, egregious though it may be, does not justify these violent acts. Now, the other way that this principle can be applied is when the government outlaws something which God requires us to do. Now, the most recent end quite difficult example of how to apply this is the COVID lockdowns, which had the effect of outlawing public worship here in New Jersey for slightly over three months, and we all went through this. Before I address this directly, let's first look at the most closely corresponding biblical example of this, which comes from Daniel chapter 6. In God's providence, I'll be preaching on this tonight, so let me just give a brief synopsis now. When King Darius prohibits prayer to anyone except himself, Daniel continues to pray three times a day, just as he had before. What God has required, namely prayer, should always be done. He submits to the punishment being thrown into the lion's den, and he is miraculously delivered by the Lord. Our second biblical example of this principle in action is when the Sanhedrin forbids the apostles from preaching in Jesus' name. They first respond saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard, Acts 4. And they are dragged before the council a second time and rebuked for their continued preaching. They put it even more bluntly. We must obey God rather than men, Acts 5.29. In both these examples, the biblical characters continue to do what God requires, even when their rulers command them to stop. These may be the closest parallels to the COVID lockdowns, shutting down worship. I don't believe they are a perfect match for one main reason. And that is that even if the government had not mandated a lockdown, based on our limited knowledge of the virus at that time, there was a good reason to stop large gatherings for a limited time for the preservation of life. This is in keeping with both the natural law and the sixth commandment. And so when our session made the decision to cancel worship, yes, we were submitting to our governing authorities, but we were also submitting to the medical experts in order to preserve life. The difficulty with submitting to the civil government was not the first few months of the pandemic, when our knowledge of the virus was limited, when the risk was very high. The difficulty was for those places where governments continued to outlaw public worship or to place onerous restrictions on it for far longer than was warranted. 
Now, I didn't follow all the stories of churches where these things happened, but some local church leaders eventually decided that they were required to obey God and not man, and to gather for worship even when it meant disobedience of their civil government. Of course, there are far more egregious examples of government overreach than these recent lockdowns. In China, worshiping in any Christian church other than the official state-sanctioned churches, which are not faithful churches at all, is a criminal act. In many Islamic, Islamic countries today, converting to Christianity or worshiping the Lord is a capital crime. And yet many believers continue to worship in secret, following the principle that what the Lord requires must always be done. They count the costs, they take up their cross and follow the Lord, even if it means disobedience to unjust laws and governing authorities. If they are caught, they take their punishment and follow the example of the apostles, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Acts 5.41. These are examples worthy of following. With the direction that our government and our culture are going, it seems quite possible, even likely, that we may be facing more trouble in the U.S., although it's not clear what form that may take. In responding to any laws or orders from the governing authorities, we must always do so with these principles in mind. What God has forbidden should never be done. What God has required should always be done. This brings us to our fourth point. Seek reform through the lesser magistrates. I said earlier that we cannot make our principle to disobey bad laws simply because they are bad. We only disobey laws that either require us to sin or which forbid us from obeying the Lord. However, we should seek to reform all bad laws. Not only those we must disobey, but also laws which allow others to sin like laws concerning abortion. We can also seek to oppose laws that lead to the squandering of resources, corrupt budgets that are just handouts to political insiders, and all sorts of other government corruption and injustices. So we must ask, what is the proper way to seek to reform the government? I don't have time this morning for a civics lesson, but hopefully you're aware of the basics of how our government works. In the U.S., we are privileged that every citizen has some political power. Each person has a voice and a vote. While in the church, we tend to think of evangelical as a theological term to refer to those who have certain views of the Bible, political pollsters use this term to identify those with pro-life views who are likely to vote a certain way. And it was in part through the effort of Christians that the recent Dobbs decision was reached. But abortion is not the only issue that Christians care about. And believers are active in seeking reform in many other areas of government. Now, even as we work for reform, we must never forget that prayer must be a vital component along with any political activism. We are called to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. 1 Timothy 2.2 Now, in addition to these methods of seeking reform, 
There's also the doctrine of the lesser magistrate, which is a doctrine that was developed during the Reformation. This doctrine is less well known today, but it is still valuable. Let me begin by clarifying the terminology. This word magistrate is simply another term for a civil ruler, and a lesser magistrate would simply refer to a civil ruler with less authority. Matthew Trujella, who's written a book on this subject, defines the doctrine in this way. The lesser magistrate doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has both a right and duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. Now, one very basic example of this in the Bible is when King Uzziah attempted to burn incense in the temple and he was prevented to do so by the priests. It was not his place. We also have the story of Queen Esther using her place as queen to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people when they were about to be wiped out by Haman's plot. We're going to see another uh, example in the restoration of King uh, Joash by Jehoiada in our next section. But getting to our own history, one of the best examples of this from American history is the Northern Resistance to the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850, which required law officials everywhere to arrest all people suspected of escaping enslavement and to imprison and fine all those who who aided an escaped slave. Juries across the northern states nullified this federal law by acquitting men who were accused of violating the law by aiding escaped slaves. In 1855, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin Supreme Court declared the Fugitive Slave Law unconstitutional, although this was later overturned by the Supreme Court. And despite this law, tens of thousands of people continued to escape slavery into the northern free states and Canada. All of this was an example of lesser magistrates using their authority to resist an unjust law imposed upon them by a higher authority. In more recent times, perhaps you heard the story of Kim Davis, county clerk of Rowan County, Kentucky, who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples following the Supreme Court's Obergefell decision. As you may expect, the court overruled her, and the county office began to issue the licenses despite her resistance, but she faithfully stood up for her Christian convictions. We are called to seek reform of the government opposing unjust laws and to use the authority of lesser magistrates when possible. The next question is, what do you do when a government becomes so tyrannical and corrupt that reform becomes impossible? Is more radical action ever warranted? This brings us to the question of government overthrow, rebellion, secession, revolution, and independence. Now, I must preface this discussion by saying I almost considered not including it. It's far too complex or difficult to cover in depth this morning. And yet, it is intimately related to the question of civil disobedience, and it's worth at least a brief overview. And here I'm covering two different concepts in this one heading. First, there is the overthrow and replacement of a government. 
And second, there is the case of a territory and its governors declaring itself independent from their current government. Now, the grounds for taking such an action would be the irremediable tyranny of the current government, and such a revolt would be properly led by the lesser magistrates. Now, the terms used to label such an action reflect whether one views it positively or negatively. We call it rebellion or perhaps secession if it's viewed uh, negatively, and if it's viewed positively, we're more likely to call it independence or perhaps revolution. Now, the two well-known examples of this from our own country's history are, of course, the American Revolution, which we tend to view positively, and the secession of the southern states leading to the Civil War, which, of course, tends to be viewed negatively unless some people in the South perhaps have more positive views. There are a few biblical examples of this, and most of them do not end well. First, we have Jeroboam's rebellion, which leads to the division of Israel into the northern and southern kingdoms. And I recounted this history two sermons ago. It's essentially a tax revolt, throwing off the heavy yoke of King Rehoboam and thus bearing some similarities to the American Revolution. The northern kingdom of Israel then goes on to suffer under ungodly kings who are in rebellion against the Lord for the rest of its history. Now, following Jeroboam's rebellion in the northern kingdom of Israel, the royal throne is overthrown eight times, with a new king being set over the kingdom each time. Now, some of these revolutions were prophesied. For example, Jehu was anointed by the Lord's prophet to overthrow the house of Omri. And yet he continued to be just as wicked as the kings before him. Now, turning to the southern kingdom of Judah... In 2 Kings 11, we have a record of a government coup followed by a restoration of the proper king. When King Ahaziah died, his mother Athaliah seized power and began to put to death all the heirs to the throne. But Jehoshaphat, the mother of Prince Joash, hid him for six years while Athaliah reigned over Judah. After this time, with the help of the priest Jehoiada, Joash was restored to the throne, and Athaliah was killed. Now, this was first a coup on the part of Queen Athaliah, followed by a restoration of the rightful king to the throne. And it was properly executed by the lesser magistrates, led by Jehoiada. And Joash's restoration was the only overthrow of a ruler in the Bible that actually had positive results. Joash goes on to be one of the few relatively good kings of Judah, although he then strayed from the Lord in his later years and was killed by his own, his own servants. Also another overthrow of the king by the lesser magistrates. What can we take away from these biblical examples regarding the question of overthrowing a tyrannical government? What we've seen from our few biblical examples is that there is not a very good record of the overthrow of a government leading to a better government. To make a major overgeneralization, this also seems to be the main lesson, lesson from history. Although the American Revolution is a large exception 
to the general rule. The general rule for Christians is to work within the system, seeking reform through the lesser magistrates. Only in the most extreme circumstances, when a government is irredeemably corrupt, would the overthrow of that government be warranted. Even in the collapse of the Soviet Union, which I'm certainly no expert on, various republics began to secede from the Union until finally the General Secretary Gorbachev resigned and the Soviet Parliament voted itself out of existence. And so it is possible for even major governmental change to happen without resorting to violent revolution. You'll notice that in the American Revolution, the colonies followed the principle of the lesser magistrates, letting their elective officials in the colonies and the Continental Congress lead the effort for independence. These are very complex, difficult decisions, certainly ones I hope I never have to make or be involved in. And yet we do see in Revelation that the government can become a demonic beast intent on murdering Christians who refuse to bow down and worship it. Perhaps in such situations, the best option would be to hide or to flee. But if there is some chance of success, perhaps seeking to overthrow such a government could be considered. Let us pray that we are never in such a situation. Sadly, this is very much the situation for believers in many Islamic countries today where Christianity is outlawed. Since they are such a minority, it is far wiser to practice their faith in secret than to seek to openly oppose their government, which would quickly lead to their martyrdom. As I said, I am only scratching the surface of this final topic of government overthrow this morning. And so let us return to the general rule, which is submission to the governing authorities. Only when they command us to do what is forbidden by God or forbid what is commanded by God do we disobey our civil authorities. For we must obey God rather than men. Thankfully, occasions for civil disobedience have been relatively uncommon in our country. They are far too common in other places around the world. As we come to our conclusion this morning, and really the conclusion of this whole series, let me remind you that God established civil government to preserve human society for the outworking of his plan to redeem his people through his son, Jesus Christ. With all their flaws, with all their injustices, governments have kept mankind from descending to the depths of wickedness that provoke God to bring the flood to wipe out all mankind from the surface of the earth. And mankind has been fruitful and multiplied and filled the earth. Now that Christ has come and inaugurated the kingdom of God, it is penetrating like leaven into all the nations of the earth through the proclamation of the gospel. Disciples are being made and baptized and taught to observe all that Jesus has commanded us. And now trusting in Christ makes you a citizen of his heavenly kingdom. But this does not relieve you from your obligations to your earthly rulers. In fact, it should make you a better citizen here on earth. A citizen who prays faithfully for your governing authorities. Who submits to them in all things lawful. And yet also 
resist them when you must, which is, in its way, a service to your rulers in resisting tyranny. We also always remember our Lord Jesus, who was accused of fomenting rebellion against Caesar by claiming to be king, and he truly is a king, but for now his kingdom is not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And he reigns in the hearts of all who trust in him. When Christ was arrested in the garden, he could have resisted, but he chose to submit to his captors. When he was about to be executed, even though he was innocent, he did not need to submit. He could have called thousands of angels to his aid, but of course, he gave his life because he was not dying for his own sins, but for the sins of his people. He was dying for you and for me. He gave his life as a ransom for sin so that we might inherit eternal life. The governments of this world are temporary. Christ and his kingdom will stand forever. And so while we submit to our governing authorities in this life, our ultimate loyalty is to our high king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rest secure knowing that he protects us from all things. And so as long as we live as sojourners and exiles, we are to seek the peace and the welfare of the earthly cities that we dwell in. But if we must disobey them and they persecute us for it, we know that they cannot ultimately harm us. As Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. At the end of the book of Revelation, we see that the dragon, the beast, and the second beast, the false prophet, are all thrown into the lake of fire for eternal destruction. But all those whose names are written in the book of life will dwell with God forever. That is our, our ultimate security, our great and lasting hope, the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we thank you that our eternal security is resting in our Lord and Savior, our great High King, Jesus Christ. We do thank you that you have given us civil government here on earth to maintain and promote justice. And we do thank you that we live in a country with a functioning government that in its way is more just than many governments here on earth. We do pray that you would give us a wisdom to interact with our governing authorities. We do pray, Lord, for them that they would work for justice. We do pray for better laws and that you would help us as Christians to work for reform within our government. If it does come to that point where we must disobey unjust laws or orders, we pray that you would give us courage to obey you rather than men. And Lord, do help us in all things and always to be faithful, to be faithful witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ in everything that we do. Help us, Lord, to always live out of love for you and for your glory. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.